Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is Angelus Morningstar, and this is episode three of Story Mode, the podcast for Storyboard, a board game podcast where I discuss games themselves, things happening in the industry, and things happening in the community. Today's episode, we have three segments. The first one is part of our retail segment, where I pose the question, what is the added value of a brick and mortar store and are they going obsolete? In the second segment, which is our Chit Encounters segment, I discuss the game Pillars of the Earth. Here, I use this as an opportunity to reflect upon the incident at Notre Dame this week. And our third segment, once more I wade into the topic of colonialism in board game following the announcement of a game called The Scramble for Africa being pulled from production. Through these three segments, I hope to allow us to reflect upon the role of history and how we interpret or view it. Let's get started. In this segment of retail, I want to address the question of what is the added value proposition of shopping at a brick and mortar retail store as opposed to shopping on an online store. As most people are aware, online stores offer a highly competitive price point compared to shopping at a physical store. And this is largely due to the fact that both types of stores have very different overheads. As online stores enjoy low operating costs, they're able to enjoy savings which they can potentially pass on to customers. And in this way, they undercut the competition of physical stores selling the same products. All of this is known. So if the matter is purely an economical one of where to find the lowest price for the same object, then there is no competition here. It is very clearly online stores are going to win out in the long run. And in fact, we can see the presence of online stores creating great disruption for physical stores. This is not just limited to the board game industry. It's a widespread phenomenon, especially with the rise of Amazon and its great success. So then we must return to this question. What does a physical store offer that an online store cannot? Why should a customer come to a physical store when an online store is cheaper? Well, some of it will do with minor levels of convenience, but mostly what it should be about, at least in my opinion, is the notion of what we can call third place theory. And I'll get back to that in a little bit. Let's get out some of the minor things first. The most immediate benefit of shopping in a physical location is you can pick up the item then and there. It is available immediately for your acquisition. However, as delivery services are getting better and we are seeing things approximating same day delivery, especially with the rise of drone delivery, that added value proposition is rapidly diminishing. And I don't think retail stores can rely upon that as an advantage. A second benefit that physical stores can offer that online stores cannot is expertise. Now, ideally, physical stores will be staffed by persons not only knowledgeable in products, i.e. games, but also knowledgeable in the industry, as well as able to engage socially with customers that is suitable for retail. And specifically, because board gaming is itself part business, part community, it is really about creating those connections or about making a person in a store not feel like they're a customer, but a participant in this world of gaming. And that is actually a very fine intersection of not only social skills, but knowledge bases. So staffing a store with that level of skill set 
is challenging. And I know from a number of anecdotal reports that there have been various stores that have attempted to staff them with more generic retail staff. And very frequently, these stores struggle. I see this time and time again. And part of this actually will segue a little bit into third place theory, which I'll come up to. But what you're doing is you're creating a face for the hobby, someone that people can interact with, engage with. And this is something that should be associated with the physical place of the store. During my time working in retail, you know, there's this very interesting engagement where we will sometimes get people call up. A lot of the times they're just seeing if a particular product is in store, but every now and then, we will get people looking for advice. Now I have to make an interesting decision around whether I invest my time in this person on a phone call who isn't actually in the store. Usually if it's a casual phone call and I'm not burdened by other people, then yes, I'm happy to sort of create that engagement. But where I find I did draw a line was when people send messages online asking for game advice, such as sending us a message and going, I like these games, can you recommend me something? I feel the moment we start offering that advice online, we aren't creating that rapport with the customers just because of the way that the online engagement is distant. So I specifically said to this customer, if you're wanting the expertise of our store staff, we actually recommend you come in store so that we can give you a proper consultation. I say that because one of the consequences of that unique blend of the aforementioned skill set is the ability to micro interview a customer, get a sense of their taste and tailor a very precise response to them based on those tastes and that requirement. You'll find that right now there is a process on BoardGameGeek trying to use algorithms to help people determine things of interest based on their previous tastes. And while it is getting part of the way there, I still think we're at the stage where an intelligent human being able to micro interview and tailor the response to that feedback is much more likely to produce successful hits than an algorithm. But again, this is a difference of cost that expertise is going to cost money. However, I think that advantage is one thing that is not going to endure for a very long amount of time. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are improving at such a rate that I could very easily see that knowledge base provided as an online chat bot of some description five years from now even. So again, if the advantages of immediacy and expertise being exclusive to physical stores are things that are disappearing with the advent of technology, what then is the advantage of a physical store? And to provide a more comprehensive response, I now turn to third place theory. Third place theory was a concept that arose in the late 80s and early 90s by Ray Oldenburg, and he talks about them as physical places of community and meeting, hubs of society. The idea being the first place is your home, the second place is your workplace, where most people can probably spend most of their time, but the third place are anchors for community life, and they facilitate or foster broader, more creative interactions. And this can even be important for democratic participation, for civil society, civil engagement. There are a couple of characteristics that Oldenburg's scholars have synthesized to depict what would create an ideal third place. Number one, a neutral ground such that participants have no specific obligation to be there. Two, a leveler. So places that don't place importance on individual status in society. Three, a place where conversation is a primary or principal activity. 
four, accessibility and accommodation. So places must be open and accessible to those who occupy them. They must be accommodating and mean providing the wants of their inhabitants. Must have certain regulars. So there must be a group of people who want to and continue to move the place. A low profile. Third places should be wholesome, have a sense of welcomingness about them, not grandiose and not extravagant. The mood is playful, so they shouldn't be tense or hostile. They should be frivolous in some ways. Ultimately, they should be a home away from home. Now, if you think about this, all of these characteristics perfectly describe a place where gaming happens. And thus, I think game stores, in order to survive, have to increasingly adapt to being places of gaming, not merely places of selling, although they can enjoy a fair amount of retail or income from selling product. If they're not providing a third place, they're just simply not offering an extra value that can detach a person from an online mode of shopping. In today's elevator pitch, I'm going to cover Ticket to Ride. It's one of the most popular games we sell at the store and is certainly a perennial classic these days. In Ticket to Ride, you and your friend are taking bets on who can travel the best around continental United States or possibly continental Europe. You will each start with several secret destinations which will list two cities on the map and your goal is to build networks of train routes between those cities. Play, you will use your action to either collect colored tickets or spend a set of them to claim a link of the same color. Now you'll get points depending on how long that link is and then you get to put your trains down and to show that you've claimed it. The game continues in this fashion until one person runs out of trains and at that point whoever has completed destinations gets to score them for points and for every destination not completed they cause a points penalty and that is Ticket to Ride. On the 15th of April, the world watched as Paris burned. While most of the stone structure of Notre Dame survived the blaze, the visible nature of the fire provoked a confluence of different feelings regarding cultural heritage, the influence of the Catholic Church, and even Western imperialism. So this week, I have been reflecting upon the seminal game, The Pillars of the Earth, published in 2006, and drawing upon the intellectual property of Ken Follett of the book of the same title. Both book and game feature the building of a cathedral in the fictional town of Kingsburg, both provide a window into fictionalized medieval world, though Follett's work received warm praise for its ability to capture a medieval sensibility. It's fair to say that both the game and the book, the cathedral stands out as the central character, you know, uh, much in the same way as uh, Gormenghast by Mervyn Peake. Now, Follett's work hoped to evoke that achievement represented by a cathedral. Many, they tend to take about 30 years to complete. Now, in the instance of Notre Dame, there was more than a century of work in that building. And this is the thing to understand. Cathedrals, they represent generational enterprises. They can take the entirety of a lifetime to complete. And for some of the larger ones, it often represents the work of several generations. Consider that for those architects and the founders of those buildings, they would initiate these projects, but they'd have a knowledge that they would never live to see them complete. And they, they tend to represent the apogee of medieval engineering and architecture. 
So yes, in here, Pillars of the Earth works to capture the politics that surround the building of a cathedral. And Follett does this by breaking his book into six periods of the cathedral's construction. And this is reflected in the six rounds of the board game. With each round that passes, you add one of six wooden blocks to showcase the visible construction of the cathedral over the period of the game. By and large, Pillars of the Earth is a resource management game. You have gravel, wood, and stone, and you use several artisans and craftsmen to convert these raw materials into parts of the cathedral. Effectively, at the end of each round, you have a conversion rate of materials into points. You start off with fairly weak craftsmen, but as the game goes on, you have chances to hire and recruit more capable craftsmen, and so the conversion rate will cost fewer materials, but also provide larger points. One of the things this does is it trains you slightly in the engine building of the game with little returns, but it allows you to focus on the sorts of materials and developments as you go through the periods. Not all of the craftsmen available are repetitions, even though there is some type, some of them are repeats. Some of them are specific to providing certain types of sales or management of resources. But outside a series of staple craftsmen, there's also a smattering of unique or specialist craftsmen that allow you to tailor or customize your approach to scoring points. So we see Pillars of the Earth being the mid-2000s game shows Part of that emergence of the worker placement genre following Kalis and similar, it was one of the ones that helped popularize the genre quite a lot. I think part of this success can be attributed to the relatively accessible nature of the gameplay. You have the various spaces on the board that represent finite places for workers. And once that is complete, the workflow of those spaces is very strongly informed by the graphic design and the artwork on the board. Pillars of the Earth also introduced a particularly unique auction mechanic. At the beginning of each round when you're placing the workers, your workers get drawn randomly out of a bag. And if they're the first to be drawn, they can act first, but it's going to cost them a certain amount of money. They, that player then has a choice of either sacrificing this money or passing, in which case the worker will sit there on a track until roughly all of the players have had a chance to act. So there's this interesting balancing mechanism where you don't know when you're going to act and you don't necessarily know if you want to spend those resources because maybe you're about to get another draw again. Cheekily, the person who is the lead player, the one doing the drag drawing out of the bag, gets to once during that draw phase, return a worker back into the bag. And just this little twist of agency gives a small level of excitement and an actual reason to take first place. The game also gives a rather generous nod to its source material by bringing to bear a range of cards that feature characters from the, from the books. And each of these offers unique advantages, sometimes once-off effects, sometimes repeatable effects. And some of them can be quite powerful if used in the right context. The expansion for Pillars of the Earth adds a secondary board which fits alongside the main board. 
And I remember being impressed by this when I first saw it because it was one of the first examples I ever encountered where the artwork from one board was continued onto a sister board and you place them together to create a larger image. And this was important because the secondary board is like an interjection of additional actions that you can do that sort of falls between like step nine and 10. I can't remember exactly. It also has the capacity for increasing the player count to six players not only offering extra places and creates an extra bank where one of each of the player's pawns are situated in reverse turn order. So this way, the draw component of the worker placement was only random for two of the workers, but the third one was preordained. And so this was a very interesting juxtaposition of the random draw that made Pillars of the Earth so unique, but also offsetting the potential massive imbalance of having a complete random draw for six players. And so there's a very interesting segue there when it comes to managing the flow of workers. I also loved the touch that they did where by the presence of the second board, the special actions that you could get from cards were defined into different types. One being the set being the permanent benefits, whereas the others offered the instant or once-off as opposed to being randomly mixed up like they are in just the standard game. Overall, Pillars of the Earth remains one of my all-time favorite games. It represents a very good entry into sorts of worker placement games and the type of decisions needed into managing an economy of resources for your engine building. It is currently out of print, but I think it is something we can look forward to because word on the grapevine is it is due for a reprint sometime soon. On the 7th of April, GMT announced a delisting of a game from their P500 list. GMT uses the P500 method as a pre-order system. Here, a game prototype will only go into pre-production if 500 people pre-order it, and will only go to print once that hits 7 to 750 orders. Now, Scramble for Africa, it had accrued about 300 orders before it became to attention to the wider public. As you might be able to infer from the title, Scramble for Africa centered on the wave of European colonization of Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries. In the words of GMT, the revocation of the prototype was in reaction for the heavy criticism that the game was receiving for, quote, both the topic and treatment, end quote, of historical colonial themes. So we are again revisiting the role and relevancy of colonial themes in board games. It proves to be a constant and continuously contentious issue for publishers, for consumers, and for gamers. As, my, as you might expect, as you might expect, the reactions to this were not the most congenial from a significant portion of GMT's fan base. There was at the very least a vocal outcry. Many of GMT games follow a particular format when it comes to the replication or the treatment of historical themes, and these are suited to the types of war games that they publish. And the pushback was at a perceived attempt to politicize games, for making games politically correct, and even for erasing history. 
I can't help but sit here and think that this might be symbolic of greater changes happening in the board game industry as a whole. Historically, GMT, Avalon Hill, and other publishers of war games have been largely insulated from concerns about historical treatments by the general public. But as GMT and similar publishers are showing sensibilities to these topics, it puts to us the question of whether there are general approaches that publishers should be taking towards the theme they publish. What are the responsibilities of board game publishers? Can and should they publish controversial themes, especially when we're talking about niche audiences? Look, the short answer is there is no topic off theme, at least in principle. We are talking about artistic endeavors and we are talking about works of entertainment. So naturally, any subject can be done by a publisher. Any subject can be approached by a designer. But these games exist in a real world. Publishers, at least from a commercial perspective and from an artistic perspective, need to be mindful that their games are going to be received by a public outside of their niche audience. It's inevitable. And I think the decision made by GMT shows an awareness of how a game with this particular topic, with the centrality on the colonial powers, reflects on them as a company. And that doesn't seem to be uh, an image that this company wants to hold up anymore. So there is a bit of a cognitive dissonance. There's not a, a message being pushed saying you can't publish a particular topic, but the reaction is showing that publishing particular topics invites certain comment, responses, and reaction. And that is a reality that even niche wargame publishers are probably contending with these days. I personally think some of these traditional wargame publishers are maybe taking note of the success of Root, which is effectively a wargame drawing strongly on the coin series for its blueprint and seeing how wildly successful that game has been by not, at least in part, by not using an historical traditional war theme. Maybe these publishers are starting to realize that their audience could be larger than the niche audience they're fulfilling. Does that mean there is a future for historical chit and counter war games? I don't know. Does that mean there are going to be changes in the market? Maybe, but I think the overall trends were going to largely remain the same. I do think though, the larger the publisher, such as GMT, the more likely the attention of the public scrutiny is going to ask them to stay in account with the approaches to the themes they publish. And I get that for many of the established fan base of this genre, that this can be very disappointing and disheartening because it's effectively saying, well, you can't have this toy anymore. I understand that reaction. I can kind of sympathize with it. But in the words of Katie Aidley, war games are for everyone. 
And if your games are meant to be for everyone, you must understand that the audience is larger than a traditional fan base. It's at this point that I want to respond to some of these criticisms, not in full, because I have covered this topic fairly extensively before in my article on our love affair with colonialism. But I always take particular distaste to the idea that the games represented here are portrayals of historical accuracy, or the games represented here are somehow excellent ways to learn history. And I take objection to both those points. Specifically, on the idea that these games show an authentic portrayal of history is misunderstanding how history works, particularly colonial history. History is subject to the way we like to remember it. As human beings, we have a tendency to want to seek out patterns. We have a tendency to need story. And the way that we remember history is very much framed by our neurological habits. And so the history we remember are those that are story framed. And because the way we usually consume historical pieces of media, particularly in fiction... We, we tend to bring those expectations to our treatment of history. Now, in my time working in the university where I would teach these subjects, there is a lot of extra framing that you need to do. History is not just written by the victors, but it also captures a particular cultural portrayal. One of the things that is particularly important to understand about these colonial games is they center upon the Europeans in them. And very often, the indigenous or local populations and their culture and their history is erased, pushed aside, trivialized, they're insurgents, and it and this casts them down. Their agency doesn't matter. Their role in the struggle doesn't matter. Even if, as we can understand from history, they were defeated by the colonial powers or subjugated by the colonial powers. And so in the scramble for Africa, we can actually see this quite strongly. What we see is the race for European colonial powers to divide the continent of Africa for their political gain, for their material gain. The effects of this still have modern implications and have quite serious historical atrocities. For example, one of the worst historical forms of genocide that we rarely hear about today occurred during the late 1800s and early 1900s in what was then known as the Congo Free State. King Leopold II of Belgium was documented to have maybe killed somewhere between 8 to 16 million native inhabitants. And this was part of a brutal regime that he imposed over the area. It has left a large 
indelible imprint on many of the black Australian people that I know who have ties back to the Congo. And it is symbolic of the kind of horrors that were perpetrated in this period. We even only have to look back as far as the 90s to see some of the shadows of colonialism. The Rwandan genocide in particular has some grounding in the way that the territories of Africa were divided up by the scramble for Africa. The Hutis and the Tutis were two indigenous inhabitants who were forced into accommodation with each other by the way that state lines divided tribal areas. And while obviously the Rwandan genocide had modern problems that fed into it, there is that long shadow cast by these histories. So, so given these, perhaps it's not unfair to be sympathetic to people whose histories have them on the subjugated side of these histories. In fact, it is no accident that I bring up the matter of Notre Dame in my earlier segment because I think it is a really excellent way to sympathize. We're looking at the destruction of, well, we're looking at a monument who has great cultural significance for people of European descent and maybe as for the world as a world heritage object. And we can see the particularly strong reactions that that provoked. So I think we can look at this and garner some sympathy for people who see their cultures destroyed and erased, perhaps even casually or blithely. And I want you to think about that as you consider the impact games and other content can have upon people. And I actually want to twist this knife a little further. There are easily about 60 games right now on Board Game Geek that feature colonial themes and a good number of them center in Africa. That being said, I remember last time I looked, there were maybe three or four games that featured African content from maybe an African point of view, and they were mostly done by European designers. So when we're talking about creativity and content creation, there is a relative plethora of colonial themes and a rather large dearth of themes that come from the other side. And for me, to be honest, the constant and repetitive approach to historical themes, often with colonial themes, is a bit boring. I want to see publishers and designers try to take their games and reimagine new themes, even if it's twisting it just a little bit to make something like Root, which is effectively a counterinsurgency game with cute woodland animals. And look how popular that was. But we can also look at games like This War of Mine and Freedom, the Underground Railroad, who take the same thematic subject and twist our expectations. Even such things as the making of a president or dominant species show how GMT style war games can be put in a completely different environment. 
And again, I'm not saying these war games should not be made. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be sold because there's a market for them. There's a niche of players who love them and enjoy them and they should be able to enjoy them. But at the same time, I do think publishers are broadening their horizons as to what their audiences can and should be and maybe finding ways to introduce or diversify or diversify their repertoire. And that's all we have time for today on this week's episode of Story Mode. Thank you again to those of you who tuned in and thank you again to those who have continued to tune in. I am looking forward to next week's topic where I approach the topic of war itself within board games. If you like the work that I'm doing and you'd like to support me, there are several options through my website, storyboardgamer.com. It can be as simple as making sure you're subscribed to either Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I have a bunch of things. Maybe even sharing this podcast with people that you like. Sharing my content is king. And finally, if you actually want to throw money at my way, there are two options. The first is my Patreon, which is listed on my website. And the second is I have a series of graphically designed shirts of my own make. These are available through Redbubble and you can find them on the store section on my website. That's all for now. Until next week.